0: experience of this or or know of somebody who could help out, I would be grateful if you come up after our time tonight and just let me know because I I want to do everything I can to get this online. Okay. I think think that's it. Yeah. Um, One more thing. I feel like I'm We just finished Chaucer and we're doing Shakespeare and we're moving into the modern world. Um, that coincided with my coming here and you know, doing the same thing but I wanted to start in the modern world because I thought it would be easier, be, you, it would be easier, more comfortable, more familiar to you to start with something closer to home than to go back to Haley. So in the course over there, uh, I decided to do um, Shakespeare's All's well that ends well. And the reason I was doing that, if you know Chaucer, you know that one of the most important stories in the Canterbury Tales is the clerk's tale. It's so about Griselda, who's this woman that most modern feminists look at as a doorman. She's just so obedient to her husband. This husband's a jerk. He keeps putting her through all these trials, and she's absolutely obedient, and in some ways, she's offensive to a modern sensibility. I saved that story for last, we just finished it, but I wanted to set it next to Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well, because the heroine there, All's Well That Ends Well That Ends Justify The Means, she looks like she's a Machiavellian woman, a modern woman, so there's a, it's called a problem play. I haven't read it in 20 years, and it's knocked me over, um, and my plan here was to do uh, Merchant of Fellow, Pick Up With You. I'm gonna change that. You will have some cases with me, and um, you'll see why. I'd like to, when we finish Othello, I'd like to do well and so And let me just say a word about it because this is—I'm not not kidding—it has knocked me over. It's about this woman who seems to be a modern Machiavellian woman. She sets out to do all these things, and she does them. Um, What's at the issue of that play are virginity and marriage. And Shakespeare does something with that relationship between virginity and marriage that, that to my knowledge, of literature, nobody has come close to and I, and I say that with Dante in the back of my mind. What Dante did with Virgil and Beatrice is extraordinary. What he did with Beatrice is extraordinary. There's an image of a woman in the Christian tradition. She's extraordinary. She's the one who completes the Dante's trip back to God. She's an extraordinary woman. I hope you see by now what extraordinary woman Portia is. She's an extraordinary woman, what she does. None of the men can do what she did. I like Helen's uh, answer to my question, I said it was right on. transactional. these men are off in their heads. I don't, I don't see a man doing what Portia did. She's extraordinary. She pales in comparison to what Helen does. And what Helen does speak so directly to our age, so I'm putting this out on the line. It speaks so directly to virginity, which is a a value that I think our world has lost. How many girls grow up today with any sense that virginity means anything? I mean, it's it's accepted that you have sex. Girls, girls sleeping with girls, you know, sleepovers. Who knows what goes on? Pregnancies, abortions. I mean, the 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 theology of the body. It seems to me spoke directly to one of the great crises of our time: our sexuality. So um, so I, th- I thought rather than wait, because my plan was Merchant, Othello, go back to the ancient Iliad, the Odyssey, the Indian, um Boethius, the Divine Comedy, and we in a lot of Shakespeare. That's what I'd like to do. If You guys stick around long enough. <laughs> I'm gonna change it. We're gonna do all of that as well, uh, after Othello in a couple of weeks. So if you would, if you would purchase the signet or the Folgers, yeah, Folgers. Just a cheap copy of All's Well Ends Well. You don't have to get a completed work either to lug that, that thing around. Um, but pick up a copy of All's Well, okay? And let me, let me say this going into, when we get to it, I'll give you a background. But for now, it's called Problem Play. It is not an easy play to read. It's one of the hardest plays of Shakespeare to, to read. It's the language that's difficult. He's playing with paradoxes, this is the difficult language. Just know that going in, because he's dealing with twisted realities. And I'm gonna get part of the way. He knows that in modern world, we leave a world of action, the Christian knight, a soldier, and enter a world of thought and words. We all know today that the great, Greatest amount of our time is taken up in language, speaking to each other. Communication. I'm going to make this statement now just to, to give something away. I think there's a fundamental or radical difference between communion and communication. We live in modes of communication. Okay? Not communion. And I think we lose something. I'll go do I don't want to take time, but just know that I'm, I'm aware of that. that would be one of the concerns we have when we look at that play. Because everybody in that play lives at a level of thought. There's very little action. The action is in thought and we're seeing how disorder of people's thinking is. Okay. So it's a difficult play, but it touches on very, very modern things. And I think in Helena, he, he's showing us the most extraordinary woman in all of his canon. He's got lots of women. Rosalind, Hermione, Paulina, Portia. Nobody, nobody has shown us the possibilities of womanhood better than Shakespeare. Except maybe Dante. And Helena is just extraordinary. So I don't know how long any of you are going to stay, and I don't want to risk it. We're going to do that play as soon as it goes over. So you have that behind you. If you're going to leave this class, at least I want you to have these amazing women because they, they speak so directly to what I think is a crisis in our time uh, with women, uh, abortions, you know, marriages, virginity, pregnancy. So Shakespeare is going to the and by the way I mean, he's 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 actually going to the heart of one of the great mysteries of the center of Christianity. Mary's was the virgin birth. I think Shakespeare lived that more in his life than most of us do today. Because I don't think he could have done that play all so well without Mary. So even though she's, I'm sorry Matthew's not here, even though she's not mentioned, there's no explicit references to her, it's clear that Mary makes possible that the image of the woman that changes the world. It, it, it brings Christianity it means she brought Christ to the world. So she's fundamental to our faith um, and it's a, something I think we want to sign in the modern world and I think the women, you know, we, people adore her and crave her, but I'm not sure that we get to the bottom of the mystery concerning her. I think Shakespeare doesn't that like So I want to do that before we go back to the ancient world. So um, pardon me for throwing things off, <laughs> get used to it. <laughs> uh, save me, Karen. Karen. Sorry? You were talking about part right. of that talk? Right. No, no, we're not doing it here. That was a great came from the Father's inspiration. But we did the differences between... What i did been for the last four years at St. Francis's, um, Literature's prophecy. And we took this break out because I thought it was really important for us to get clear on differences between Protestants and Catholics. <coughs> I, because I think we, we don't, not, we're we not very clear on the differences, why we're Catholic, and what the differences are. And so it was just a way of, right, we looked at the church reform, the reformers, Calvin, Luther, what was going on. And, and then when we finished, we picked up with this, and so we went back to Chaucer, and now we're back to Shakespeare, and we're doing as about, and I've been so over by it, I thought it would be appropriate for us to do here, so I'm gonna just put that in before we go back, okay? Just know in advance, it's not an easy play, but, just, I'm I'm amazed at what it's doing. I hope I can do some justice to it. Um, Any prayers from the last group? I can't remember if Q, R, to Z, anybody, whose last initials start with those letters? any special prayers tonight? Yes, what should you say know, to me? I'm, I'm Connie. Connie? Connie. I'm Connie? I have, first of all, a personal intention that I wish I could provide and pray for in Miami and State with the <laughs> lot of uh, those. And, um, and thanksgiving for a friend of ours that had an answer that's in remission now. And we just ask that if it's the will of God that it will stay away. What can I ask the person's name? How? Robert? Robert? Thank you. Help yourself to the food. no Helen somebody else brought something. I got a glimpse of it, I want to make sure I get over to that table for you Okay. So it was a to be better. Please help yourself. Last week we did the Son of 94, those that have the power here. We talked about the differences between the butt and um, remember that the is about this small group of people who act in accord with their virtue. It's a small group. They don't have to overcome something. Remember, they don't have to overcome something. This virtue is so strong that their actions are consonant with the virtue. They're acting according to something. Okay. By the way, just a side note. You know, according to the Protestant belief, the, the effects of the fall were complete. It's one of the differences separating our two faiths. The Protestant belief, the, the effects of the fall were complete. That we were left depraved, ruined. That's Luther, that's Calvin, that's weak, that's all. That we lost our free will, that we carry around this innate depravity. It's only by God's grace that we can overcome. For the Catholic, that's not so. For the Catholic, we believe The effects of the fall were not complete. We were wounded. The Effects of the fall are what we call concupiscence, And any of you who struggle with sin—assuming you all um, have—speak for myself. In the throes of concupiscence, it's like the fall. The effects of the fall are complete because concupiscence is so great. We try not to sin, but we do. That's why we go to confession. So as much as we struggle to overcome our sins, we know that without Christ, we can. Um, but the Protestant doesn't believe in this innate goodness. believes we're to pray we've lost our free will. Think about that when you're looking at a poem like this. Those that have the power to repent will do none. Whatever this small group of people, whatever they do, they're, they're acting in accord with some virtue that's inherent in them. Or they couldn't do what they're doing they're not overcoming something. They're acting in accord with a virtue. It's intrinsic to them. They did have the power and will do none. There's no but there. Okay. Um, so that's just a side note. Um, Shakespeare knows, believes, Helen is going to be an example. Portia is a good example of that. Helen is going to be an example. That according to our beliefs, man has this intrinsic good. He was very born, created with it. made with it. We were wounded in our fall, but not made corrupt. Milton's term in Paradise Lost, Milton, all corrupt. The understanding of the reformers is that we were corrupted. Without God's grace, we could do nothing. When you read Dante, you'll see, you, I mean, you, you, you can't miss it. When you read Dante, on the, in the first level of the inferno, Dante's got there in the first level of the inferno hell, The virtuous pagans. They're not being punished. Like all the other lustful, gluttonous, you know. They're the virtuous pagans. It's a dark, dim world, you know, but they're not punished. Because Dante's showing that these men were virtuous. But virtue itself isn't sufficient to get us to heaven. Heaven's a supernatural condition. We can't get there on our own. We can't get there without God, without what Christ did. But believes that virtue is possible in this world. and ain't virtue, virtue is pagans. Virgil is the one who led Donny two-thirds of his journey. Without Virgil, Donny wouldn't have made it. Without the past, without everything that we've been given from the pagans, we wouldn't be here. Plato, Aristotle, Virgil, he made it. So Shakespeare belongs to that company. He, he believes that man has its inherent free will, it's good. It was wounded in the fall, but not corrupted. You, according to the Catholic tradition, you cannot corrupt an essence. God made man good in essence. That's an essence from God. You can't corrupt an essence. You can wound it. Okay? So last week we read this quote, David Abbott, Power remember, wounded. We'll I want to read it again just because hearing it again brings it home again. And then I want to read Psalm 116. Um, it's about love. So the that very often is read, it, read it. I'm not going to comment on it except to say he's, he's defining love, describing what love is, and like any good definition, he's partly trying to do it by saying what love is not. It helps us clarify what love is. Because love is very much at, at the center of the place of the be Virgin Ness, Othello. There's this great love between Othello and Desdemona. It is terribly wounded. And when we start, all's well that ends well, this extraordinary love with this woman, has. Yes, this woman named Helen. Okay. So, Sonnet 94. Sonnet 94. They that have the power to hurt, and will do none. that do not do the thing they most do show, the beauty of a woman, she doesn't take advantage of it, the athletic prowess of an athlete. that do not do the thing they most do show, moving others are themselves a stone, unmoved, cold, into to temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces, and husbands' nature's riches from expense. They don't waste it. And vanities using other people. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. The summer's flower is to the summer sweet, though to itself it only live and die. It just lives, it's not vainly showing itself offered. It just is. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basis weed not braves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds, lilies that fester, so far worse than weeds. John 1.16. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which falters when it alteration finds, or bends with a remover to remove. No matter what happens to the beloved, this person's love will not change is absolutely constant. I can't hear these lines without thinking better or worse. Even when the person you love does something horrible. I I don't don't know how to understand Christ if we don't do that because he didn't come here because we were good. (laughs) He came here when we were really bad. Uh, So we're asked to love people no matter what they do. Doing something like to be resourceful Remember, we're called the justice and mercy both. So to love somebody means not leaving them where they are. Maybe something means bringing justice and mercy together, but, but remaining constant in that love. Love is not love which alters when an alteration finds or bends when the removal to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose words unknown although this might be taken. Love's not time's fool or rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. We could, he could not have written that poem um, without Christ. Um, From last week. In the letter Paul's saying um, he's urging the people to follow him, to take him as an example. He's laying hands on the people. And he says, as a Christian, you're asked to put away all cowardice and step forward in love. And he said, it's by virtue of a he said, by virtue of a power, the love, something else I can't remember. Who we follow Christ. What he was saying is to be confident. How many people step forward today absolutely confident in Christ, or no, rather, in their love, that their love is absolutely whole to do what Christ did? The disciples healed. They cast out demons. There wasn't anything they didn't do. Could they have done that if their love was not whole? They brought a divine power in what they were doing, yeah? They're talking, they're, they're living a whole love made possible by Christ. Shakespeare's in this song is talking about that kind of love. Remaining absolutely steadfast no matter what this person faces, how hard it is to do. But that's that's um, what he's declaring in that son. okay? Okay, we're entering a dark, tragic world. I hope everybody's good. Going from Merchant of Venice to so, and we're going to be dealing with a real see, Very briefly. Um, I want to go over the general purpose of the course to make clear two propositions that I set out when I first began. And I want to go back to my question last week where we see Christ in Merchant of Venice. We were all clear about that, but I'm gonna throw a curve tonight. We're gonna go back to the city again. Uh, It's the same city, we're in Venice, but now we're looking at Venice under its tragic aspect. It's the same exact city, but Shakespeare's bringing out a dimension to Venice that he didn't treat in um, Merchant of Venice because Merchant of Venice is a comedy. He's showing us an act. He's showing us the action of wonder. What happens when love can work and um, realize its end? Because what happens at the end, you know, um, Portia was on return, and Nerissa um, and, and um, um, Graziano return. Um, that the ship they get news that the ships return, and and the women lay into the men, but they do it in a kind-hearted way. And they take apart from giving up the rings, but they do it kindly and, and um, what, we, what we experience is this wonderful experience of resolution and joy all together. In Othello, gone. We're entering into a world now where we're going to experience something tragic to the nature of things. All that was hidden in words of the menace, all that was dark and kept under control, because you all know that if, if that the actual play in the middle of the play is heading towards a tragedy. It's gonna cost Antonio's life, right? It's going towards a tragedy. It's only because Portia comes in, I hope that's clear, it's only because she comes in and does what she does that a tragedy is averted. Antonio's life is spared. So the comedy risks the life but overcomes the dangers and it brings potentially a tragic situation to a good end. In Othello, we're gonna watch the reverse of that. It begins with a young man and woman marrying it's against the father's will, and everything seems good except it's going to turn and become really, really dark. So, here we're going to be looking at something in Venice that is um, inimical to love. It's evil. I think it's probably Shakespeare's best treatment of evil in any of his plays, and it's here in Venice. So, we're going to look at the same city, it's the same city, but it's under a shadow, it's under an evil. Look at that clearly, I wanna take a few minutes with genres, um, and then I'm, um, we're gonna look at the differences between Venice and Cyprus, and then I wanna come back to this question, how is it, what is it about Venice that produces in Iago? And it's pretty clear, I think, I think I must have it. it's pretty clear that is a product that there's something in our regime that lends itself evil. So we're going to have to look at it. That, okay? That's where we are. Um, okay. <clears throat> the purpose of the The reason we got together is to see if we couldn't find Christ, there or ordinarily we don't see him. We've read a number of lyrics so far in which we saw Christ concretely realized in an actual event. Supernatural love was in a child, in a wounding of himself. Wind was a bird. So we've actually experienced works in which, in, in a background, he was immediately present, whatever was going on with child moving herself, seen, Hopkins seen a bird. In the play so far, in Virgin Venice, we haven't seen Christ himself, but we've seen Christ's figures. One of them is Portia. The, the comp- complete self-giving that she showed in what she did. Antonio was completely self-giving in what he did. I suggested last week that I think Portia in some ways more completely realizes Christ as a woman than Antonio, because she's wiser something a little bit casual about the men, the way they risk themselves. It's the, it's the women that, that save the men here, that pull them out of the stupid things they do. Um, for a minute, I just want everybody to hold on to the background of Plato's Cave, because we've gone into that at in length right now. Remember, there's two actions. According to Plato, every, all of us are trapped in a cave, believing that we see in appearances, how we all appear to each other, so it's real. We when for Plato, we all know that that's a surface. That whatever image we present to the world, there's something underneath. Or we would go to confessions, We would. That there is a hidden self. Plato believed that when we started asking questions and we acknowledge that we don't know what we think we do, we begin to get free and move out of the gate. So there's this possibility in us as humans that we can free ourselves if we have the humanity to stop pretending that we know everything and stay open to the world, to something transcendent. The opposite line of action is somebody coming into the cave. That's Christ descending into the cave. So for Plato, he, he believed that when people begin to question, learn to wonder, to wonder means to know the causes of things and want to know why, children do that naturally. Why is this so, why is that so? That if we begin to wonder and ask questions, We approach the causes, the reasons for things. We we grow wisdom. And for Plato, he knew that when somebody comes out of the cave, because he learns to see the eternal truth of things, he has to go back into the cave to teach others. So there's, implied in that cave, a communal action. We are tied together. Once he gets out, he just can't escape the pain. And we know that once he goes back in, what's going to happen? He's going to die. He's going to be crucified. Athens is going to execute. The opposite action is Christ comes into the cave to take us out, and he's gonna be executed. So the the, the cave, the city, is a place of trial. It's where we learn to see who we really are. We struggle to become better against all the forces that threaten to overcome us. Um, So keep in mind that image of the city, and that that twofold action, down, up up, and down. I also make two propositions. I said, one, that there's something prophetic to literature, that literature often shows us things about ourselves that we don't want to know. Moreover, I've suggested that literature returns us to the world. We're not left in ideas. We're not in abstractions. That's absolutely crucial. In ideas, philosophy, theology, we know about the world, intellectually, but we're still removed from it. Literature is the only kind of knowledge that returns us to the world to re-experience. If we enter into it again, it's like a grace because it helps It helps us to see some things we didn't see before and it helps us to feel some things we didn't feel. But it's always through experience, not ideas. Okay? It's like a grace, a gift. We can go back to the world and see more and feel more. Um, and um, one of the links that we've been seeing, I hope it's... Doesn't seem too far fetched here. Is that there's this intimate, int- sorry, intrinsic link between poetry and the word, poetry and the city. Okay? That the two are intimately connected. In the modern world, we take as our paradigms for psychology Freud. One critic who happens to be Jewish called Freud Jewish in his thinking. Because Freud made intergenerational relationships, the essence of his understanding. The sins of the father. We all carry the sins of the father out of this complex. Every boy grows up wanting to marry his mother or the father. That became a fixed theory for, for, for Freud. Um, Plato and others, Shakespeare certainly enlarged that. The family is absolutely crucial. You can't escape it. But for Plato and the great thinkers Aristotle, certainly Thomas and others and Shakespeare. The city is a more important paradigm because things go on in the city that can can influence the family in ways the family can't. Here's a good example of Othello. We've got Iago who's who's going to hurt everybody, whatever their relationships. So the city's a larger paradigm. More is going on in the city than in the family. And it enlarges our perspective of things. It includes the family, but it shows there are influences outside the family that we have to take into account if we're to understand it's family. It can't just be confined to marriages or families. Um, so in the works that we're reading, we're always seeing some action going on involving a person, but in a larger context. The city, the nation, the people, whatever it is. Our call as a church is to bring Christ to the world. So here's the question that was implied in all that we did when we started out together. We're asked to follow Christ to bring him to the world. Um, How do we do that when we bring Christ to the world, particularly as Catholics? Can we do it as well as we can if we don't know our world or ourselves? if we don't know exactly what we're facing in ourselves and in others. Portia can do what she did because she brought a wisdom and a love to her actions that nobody else could bring. Is there, the men are all Christians. Huh? Most of them are either Jewish or Christian. But anybody of that world have done what she did, even with her faith. No, they couldn't. Christ didn't just bring us his love. He brought us the wisdom of the Father. He was the second person of the truth. In me you see the Father, in me you know. if you know me you know the Father. There was nothing he did that wasn't done in wisdom, whatever he did. Even the cross has to have a wisdom, however hard, how hard it is for us to understand. Pope John Paul wrote Fide Retio, in which he said, it's absolutely crucial for us to bring faith and reason together. We're not Protestants, the Protestants believe reason is corrupted. Nature is corrupted. So is reason. Our free will is corrupted. We don't. We believe reason is a good thing, that we were left our free will. We're wounded badly. We're given a sin. But our call is to bring our nature and grace together. Grace perfects nature. Yeah? Grace perfects it. It's not because nature is corrupted. It perfects it. Nature is good. God made it. So in Virgin Venice, we saw an action involving a woman who brought this extraordinary faith and a wisdom to what she did. Without it, Antonio's death, dead, and we've already got the city's has Okay? Now something's gonna happen here in Fellow because um, there would be nobody there to help out. It's gonna end tragically, we've gotta look at that and ask why. One of the questions that I wanna ask before we go on, because we didn't deal with it last time, <laughs> It's, it's something easy, it's so easy to overlook. When I asked the question last week, is there anybody in the play who, uh, who resembles Christ? Everybody's pretty clear. I mean, most people said immediately Antonio. It was interesting, we, they went to Antonio and said Portia, and then Portia. Is there anybody else connected with the play that is Christ-like? They that have the power to hurt and will do none. But do not do the thing they mostly show. The moving others are themselves a stone, unmoved, cold, and through temptation slow. The moving others are themselves a stone, unmoved, cold. These are people who are so focused on what they're doing, so completely giving themselves that they bring good out of it. Blessed this portion does that, right? She, she's so focused, her mind and heart, on bringing the good out of that wall, right? Nobody else can read, we went through that. How does she do it? Because she's true to the law, but she's true to it in a way that, that achieves the end of the law but nobody else can. The end of the law is the good of everybody, the justice of everybody. Shylock had his way, he would have killed him. Too. That's not just. If the Christians had had their way, they would have let him off. One's too harsh, one's too enabling. And we know how much we struggle against those two instincts. It's easy to enable, to let things go. Um, it's easy to be harsh, exactly Bringing the two together, not easy. Is there anybody else connected with that play that um, is crested? Mary? I thought not Nina Rissa because she was obedient and because I would see she was so close to Portia that it would have to go off. Yeah, she's a good woman, for sure, for sure. She's better, I think, than the Son of because I mean, as a matchup, but okay? yeah. Larry, um, the merchant, because he gave... We included him. We did Antonio, the mm-hmm. It's not a character in the play. Oh, wow. Go there, say that. I mean, I had go ahead, why, why do you say that? Yeah. It's hard to see him doing that without, I mean, I, yeah, I was, it's hard to see him doing that without loving her deeply, even though it's not obvious in the trial because he's going to put her through it. Yeah. But if I'm it, right. I'm right. I'm right. 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 Yeah. It's the poet. We just. I want to spend only a minute because I'm going to keep coming back to this as long as we. Is there any way in which the poet is like Christ in what he does? They that have the power of hurt and will do none, do not do the thing they most to show, who moving others are themselves as stone, unmoved, cold and through temptation, slow they rightly do in their... How many poets could take a situation like the one that Shakespeare presented in Merchant and bring a good out of it? Could he have ever done what he did? Think about the right, think about the way he didn't use words, what he did with words. The words he gave Portia. the words he gave them in, the in, Shiloh was a Jew, the Christians as Christians. How appropriate they were. How fully realized those characteristics were. And what he did to bring that to a good conclusion, to bring good out of evil. Can't he do that without being close to God? Remember the analogy that I've been pressing all along is there's there's this intrinsic relationship between poetry and the city, between the word the word and new Jerusalem, the garden. I've been suggesting poetry takes us back to the garden. It helps us to recover that perfection we once had and lost. It also looks forward to the New Jerusalem, that city we all long for, that communion, that love we all want. Does Shakespeare do that? Remember Plato's critique. Plato said I, the only poet I will allow into the city is the poet who sees the universal truths and who can help bring us to them. Because all the other poets keep us in the cave. Does Shakespeare keep us in the cave? Or does he help us out? Let me just throw that because I'm going to come back to it again and again. That the poet, the one who uses words, if he's a good poet, the, the question of that is, is what he's doing in accord with the word? The Word is Christ, he's John. He is the means of creation. It was through him that all things are made. It's through him that creation continues, the Holy Spirit continues the work, carries on the work of creation to bring good out of evil, to continue acting good. How much is the poet like a Christ figure that we don't see with what he does? Go ahead. What's your name? Sharon. Sharon? Sharon. Sharon. the action was an imitation of a plot. And we all know that the plot is the sequence of episodes, right, this happens, all these things happen, right? Um have start. It starts with Antonio saying, I'm sad, his friends come to him, but Sony wants money. Everything's set in motion. Aristotle said that the plot is so important. The plot is an imitation of an action. It's an imitation of an action. So all of these events imitate an action. So the plot is the visible presentation of things, what we all see with each other. The action is invisible. The only way we can get to that action is through the visible. It's like Paul. It's through the visible things that we get to the invisible, okay? So every plot is an imitation of an action. That is, every plot is an imitation of some spiritual movement, a change that takes place. What's the change that takes place in Merchant? The change moves from an apparent prosperity, everything's going up well, towards a tragedy, and it changes, and a, a tragedy is averted. It brings justice to Venice, when justice was not gonna be done. And that justice is completed in Belmont, that's the action. It's a movement towards joy. It overcomes a tragedy, it ends in joy, wonder. That's the action, right? Um, So, every action, every play has an action. Um, Um, We know the action through he said the crucial elements of every tragedy are a parapetia, a turn, and an and a recognition, okay? So at some point in the plot, a peripatia, a turn takes place, sorry, a turn takes place Um, People go, we go through our life thinking everything's okay and then suddenly something happens and it's like the rug gets pulled out from underneath us. We think just when things are going well, we can settle, something knocks us on our feet. The church calls those moments, moments of metanoia, it's a conversion, change takes place. And it's almost almost always violent. We never see, or we rarely see it coming um, or, or having the effect that it's gonna have. In that moment of turning, a recognition takes place, an anagnorisis. Anagnorisis, a recognition. The person grows in self-knowledge. We all have those moments, I know. We go through life's, um, we, we discover our sons on drugs. Or Aunt Molly runs away and abandons her husband, or whatever goes on. It's the fact that that's a violent moment for us that forces us to realize there was something there that we weren't seeing that we have to see, and it changes the way we see ourselves and it changes the way we see others. There's a growth in self-understanding and in an understanding of the world, and we know how much suffering it causes, the, how important those are for our own. I think I'm speaking for everybody, I hope so. They're the last thing we want to experience, none, none of us wants to suffer, but when we look back on them, we realize they were gifts there, that we were blind to certain things, we didn't see them, okay? Um, as a result of that change, that turn that takes place, a catharsis takes place, a purging, and for Aristotle, the, the emotions that are purged, this is absolutely crucial. The emotions that are purged are pity and fear. Okay? Those are the tragic emotions. And I want to take a minute with this. I know this is all basic and it may seem away from this, but uh, it'll it'll clear up when we we'll get back to Othello. Why is that why why is the purging of those two emotions important? Because both of those emotions are paralyzing. And trust me, everybody knows that when we're frightened of something, we don't move. Or or if we have courage, we, we do. We have the courage to overcome something. But if we stay in that fear, we're paralyzed, we don't move. Pity's the same emotion. I can't think of I I can't think of emotion that more contributes to enabling than pity. You feel sorry for your child, so you don't take the hard stand that you should. Yeah? So long as you're trapped in pity. Your sorrow for somebody. You can't move. You won't do something. Enabling goes on. We know that. Um, Pity is not love. Pity looks like love. It's not love. The difference between pity and love is in, in pity, we identify with the sufferings with another. So there's something of ourselves involved in pity, right? We identify with the sufferings of somebody else. That's so often why we don't act on them. Say, when we're supposed to correct our child when we don't say, or something. Love is different. In love, we act for the good of another, even when it's hard. Porch's father is a really good example. I mean, think of a father who would feel so much pity for his daughter that he didn't take the hard stand that he should, let's say. I mean, when he, proso- he proposes for his daughter, it's really tough, it's not an easy thing, and yet it's wise. So the two tragic emotions that are, that are purged in a tragedy are pity and fear, because they're so basic to our lives. And they're both paralyzing. They're not love, OK? So in a tragedy, Aristotle was saying this. In a tragedy, comedy moves from misfortune to good fortune. That's the action of a merchant, right? Things are going to go bad. Of course, saves the day, and everything ends well. So, it goes from misfortune to good fortune. Tragedy is the opposite. It goes f- from good fortune to bad. Comedy is from bad fortune to good. It ends with wonder, happiness, joy. Tragedy, tragedy is the opposite. It goes from bad, good fortune to bad. But here's the important thing. This is what keeps tragedy from being absurd. In every good tragedy, there's a turn, a and then um, a metanoia, a turn of change. And with that change, a recognition, a growth in self-knowledge. So every tragedy restores us to equilibrium. It returns us to something rational in the world and in ourselves. So every tragedy affirms a rationality to nature and ourselves implicitly in that belief of Aristotle, remember he's pre-Christian, implicit is that belief in a Logos. There is a Logos, an order to nature, a rationality to nature. So as bad as tragedies seem, they're good. Somebody will have to undergo an ordeal, but it always, the, the end of tragedy is the restoration of some order. Some injustice is answered and overcome. Otherwise we've got absurdity, which is the character of so many modern plays. Is that clear? Let me stop for a second. Any questions on that? It's so basic. And it's gonna be crucial for what we do with, with The. I don't want to go past it. Uh, any questions? Any questions? Sorry? The the three essential terms to a tragedy are a catharsis a purging a peripatia, a turn, and an and agnorsis, a recognition. Implicit in it is all tragedy moves towards a restoration, a recovery of a balance, a return to sanity. Some bad is going on, and it's answered. So even tragedy is good. It recovers something lost. In Othello, we're see all, all every character in the and practically every character in the story is going to be affected by Iago. Evil's going to work in every one of them. How does it end, I don't want, But we have to get there, but we're going to be watching a community almost overcome by this evil man. Love is going to be wounded deeply. Um, and we have to talk about the end and what happens at the end, whether a justice is served or not, okay? But that's the paradigm, that's tragedy. Okay. So all tragedy implies the justice of goodness, the restoration of some order. Now city, once again. We're still in Venice, and we saw when we looked last time that this is still Venice. In the opening lines we saw Burbancio when Rodrigo went to wake him up. He said, this is Venice, it's not a Grange. His assumption is this is a place of law and order, those things don't happen here. And shortly afterwards he says it's like my dream. So he had a premonition, some, something unconscious, something subrational, below the conscious, the rest, below the level of rationality, working on it, but he wouldn't listen to it. So the rational city is the city that lives in reason and thinks that reason is going to be sufficient and will cover everything. What's the what are, what are some of the things that reason in our modern scientific world cannot deal with truths truth? explain that somebody that's true can it get to transcendental truths empirical reason can it do it no can reason can reason deal with sin or evil can it see it no it can't I mean, the, one of the things that defines this play is that everybody is susceptible to Yahgo. Why? Reason can't deal with evil. What, watch what psychologists do with evil schizophrenia, paranoia, psychopath. I mean, it, it will give all these terms. Can it, can it ever get to Satan? Put a modern side up against Satan. Who's going to win intellectually? I hope that's clear. You don't want to tell, one of the great things about Paradise Lost is when you watch Adam and Eve deal with Satan, they are so outmanned. How can any of us deal with a spiritual evil in that great? If, you, if you've if you read The Fellowship of the Ring or you know or watched the movies of Tolkien, you you know that evil is, it, its power is extraordinary. You can't, front it through, the, through the hook, it has to struggle to, to want that ring, to not want it finally, it's going to cost him his finger. Um, put a human being next to Satan, intellectually. Who's going to win? It's like putting a rookie against somebody with an ability you can't even begin to compare. He's an angel. And so he's all intellect. You don't, want to tempt, you don't want to tempt him. So one of the things reason can't deal with, and what Shakespeare is very clear about, one of the things that it can't, and one of the things it's most susceptible to is evil because it's so rational? It thinks it can control everything, manage everything, because our powers of reason are so capable. Yes, I mean we go through our lives so capable. There's not much we can't do. And I, 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 I feel the sense of it deeply myself. I grew up thinking there was a lot I could do. I mean I was athletic, I didn't do well in school and general because it just wasn't part of my when I put my mind to things I can do them one of the things that's frightening me I mean, as I got older is it's so hard to do away with my sins it's a lifelong struggle reason can do so much we're so capable how good are we, we if we were left to our, oh, let me ask you if we were left to ourselves could any one of us in this room say honestly that you'd be capable of doing away with your sins on your own speak for myself here. My answer to that is unequivocally no. Why did Christ come down then? This was God. It took a divine power to answer. So Venice is the rational city. It it emerges out of this collapse of the the Holy Roman Empire, this great shift, and this new kind of city that valued freedom, the the, the resourcefulness of man to take on his world. It's such a good thing. And his freedom is its end for man to try to use his own powers to better himself. But it's also in that city that evil can accomplish this extraordinary thing that he does. So what are some of the characteristics of this city? It's the same Venice. It's the city of law and order. It doesn't recognize things beneath the surface. Robanchio doesn't give any credence to his dream. He wants to dismiss it. When we get to Cyprus, Cyprus is going to show us the underworld of that rational city. So in the same way that, um, I think you all got that handout, didn't you? With the schemes, in the the same way that uh, Belmont was the, uh, what, what, what I call, the city of the imagination of poetry, beauty, art. At the opposite extreme is Cyprus. Cyprus is an image of the undercity of Venice. It's what's below the surface that nobody in Venice wants to see. It's all the ugliness, the sins, the, the betrayals, uh, all that all that Diogos, uh, <laughs> able to do. Okay. The word capitalism. If I did this last week. The word capitalism comes from the word kaput, head. Capitalism means the resourcefulness of the mind. How intellectually resourceful we can be using our minds to help uh, enlarge our freedoms. It's produced produces great material wealth. We have a great material comfort. What are the great virtues of capitalism? Resourcefulness, ingenuity, risky. Yeah? They are central to the whole capitalistic enterprise. Now, for a moment, identify the opposites of those. Resourcefulness, ingenuity, risking. What's the opposite? Perversity, cunning, deceit, cheating. Take those intellectual virtues that make our world great. Resourcefulness, ingenuity, risking. All good things. What are their opposite? Cunning, deceit, cheating. What do we find in the outcome? All of us. They're intellectual in character. So, one of the things that marks this regime is its intellectual nature. It's given to the mind. I hope you're all aware. The angels were all intellectual, none of them had bodies. The greatest sin was intellectual, it was Lucifer's. Okay? Um, another similarity. Once again, we're in Venice, and we're watching a a play unfold in which the father's authority is gone. There is no father authority. Remember we talked about the disintegration of the family in Venice. Gogo doesn't know his son, Lancelot. Jessica runs away from her father. This play opens with what? A daughter running away from her father. The father's authority is gone again. It's only in Belmont that the father has his authority. So, let me ask this question. I want to take it. I probably shouldn't take this, but I'm glad to do this. It may mean more on Bethel longer than I planned. If the father doesn't have his authority anymore, in the way that Shakespeare showed it, where does the authority go, and why? Why is the, why is the father's authority virtually gone in this Venetian world? I venture to say that most fathers in this room, as fathers, would feel that that we grow up in a world that doesn't think very much of fathers today. Well, they, in essence, they place the God of the church with the God of the dollar, and and that nurtures their thought, but it doesn't nurture their lives, and therefore they are only falling yeah. corn. Yeah. yeah. Somebody was gonna somebody over here. see um, state. What state, which state are you? In? Amy. the Explain that. Can you say it again louder, please? It's interesting to me that that it seems to me that what Shakespeare suggests—he doesn't show it explicitly—but that the, the authority gets turned over to the state powers, the larger, the, the principle of order for an economic world. Because what's really clear when you read these plays is that there is no authority in the father. The father in Belmont is, you know, it's in place, but outside of it, um, the relationship between fathers and daughters is terribly wounded in, in both of these plays. Um, Mary, go ahead. Well, I question, because it seems that both in March of Venice and Othello, that Desimona and Jessica seemed like decent young women who are full of virtue, yes. who were good wives, they were good daughters, because evidently their fathers loved them. Yeah. So, so why would Charlotte, you— Shiloh, Jessica— Well, he wasn't going to Remember what his words were when he discovered that she told, she'd taken all her coins and sold the ring for a monkey? Do you remember what he said? He wanted her buried dead with all the money. I mean, he cursed her. Because his value is money. Far more than his daughter. Well, why would these men run away from their fathers? Were they. It was a cultural thing? Were their father mean? I. I, that's, that's a larger question. Let me, let me try to give a, as brief an answer as I can and then try to go back to the play because we've got to stay with that. My only sense of that is that if, in, in this world, the modern world, we're watching money define people's lives and the family disintegrate. And when the family disintegrate, it, 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 it most immediately, it seems to me, would affect the head. And Shakespeare, I think, believed—if you read enough of his plays—that the really crucial relationships in a family are the relationship between a father and his daughter, and a mother and son. And it's—and we know when we watch these plays that the most important thing for what goes on in the family is the practice of virtue. Where virtue is lived, the kids do better. Where they don't, the families suffer. I mean, we, that's a fact of life we know from the own experiences. Here, let me go on. Um, money and self-interest are still the driving forces. They define everybody's with his lies. The play opens with um, Rodrigo going, "Tus, Tusk, you who've got my purse strings. He was employing Iago to help in his pursuit of Desdemona, and the trust of that was in money. He gave him his promise of money. And I want to read a passage in a minute, to just up. And we know that, from those opening pages again, that what establishes the worth of relationships in this world is money. It defines what they all do. It's what drives them. Othello comes into this world as a third world character. He doesn't belong to this world. This is really important to remember. He comes from a Moorish world, probably North Africa or Spain some America, But he's Moorish and he's black. Um, and he's converted to Christianity. Those are facts of the play. So Othello represents somebody outside this this Western center of art and education because that's what Venice is. The people in Venice are well educated, they're articulate, they've been trained to use their minds. Think about um, Iago. Othello comes into this as a noble sandwich. and we can't miss that because the Senate makes it clear they want him to lead this expedition to Cyprus. They don't want somebody else. In fact, Rubancio goes to the Senate expecting to get support for the Senate because his daughter's eloped. And when the, when the Senate hears that there are these Turkish fleets moving towards um, Cyprus, they want a fellow there. Rubantio gets dismissed as a father. His value as a father is not valuable. What's, what's valuable are their assets. In these outposts. So what they do is protect their economic interests, and Othello is useful for them. Okay, so he's strong. He has a, a prowess as a warrior, a fighter, and the regime is going to make use of it. Um, the The principal virtue of this world, this Phoenician world, is honesty. Why? Iago's. This is so strange. Over you can read the play if you read it again. Iago must be called honest Iago a hundred times, at least. On Iago, on Iago. When they get to the um, um, Cyprus, he talks about his um, his his second commander, the, the man that he's done all those battles with, this, this honest figure that you can trust. What is honesty? Remember, the ancient virtues for the ancient world are prudence fortitude temperance and justice those are the natural virtues those are the virtues we're all supposed to be practicing to become more temperate become just to become prudent um, to have fortitude to struggle through things st Paul said fortitude pleases to hope those are the natural virtues honesty was never included among them that's a completely modern virtue why is it appropriate here why is honesty such a why is why does Shakespeare make so much of this one thing and identify it with the algorithm? Is everybody here Honesty means holding your word, that you can be counted on, trust, trusting you hold up to, and that you're truthful, you're genuine in what you're doing. Otherwise, you would, I mean, certainly would, you'd be less trustful than the person you thought was dishonest, right, if you went into a contract. What's the problem with honesty? Here, in the play, what's the problem? Yeah, but it's the opposite and because people continually think of him as honest, they fall prey to his dishonesty And where everything. Let me ask that differently because I think... Say your name again. Melody. S- say this. Melody. 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 Um, yes, that's exactly true. How do I put this? Why are they so susceptible to him? Because you're you absolutely right. They they think he's honest, but as a matter of fact he's not. Why why are they so susceptible And What does that say about Venice? So that's what we were just talking about, that theory of they're using their reason, in their intellect, and because they only think of it that way, they just can't see people. So it's not Would, I mean, hilarious words. How, what did you say? What was your word? Gullible. They're all, they're all credulous. They're too credulous. They're too trusting. They're too gullible. My question is why? What is it about Venice that makes people? Is there, I hope, there, if you've read the play, you know. Everybody is susceptible to this man. Everybody. He, 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 he affects everybody. Everybody takes it as being honest. He seems that way. So, you come away from the play saying they're all gullible or credulous, they're too trusting. My question is, why, what does that say about Venice? Why is that such a dominating characteristic in this regime? Same thing, same. Kristen? Kristen. Because they value intellect above all else. So, if intellect is the ultimate, when they look at this man who's cunning, and he knows how to speak, he knows how to talk to everyone. They look at him and they think that he is highly intellectual. He must know what he's talking about, and he has to be true. He has to be speaking truth. Anybody else? He speaks whatever people want to hear attack. He's really He addresses knows the family Yeah. They're all taken by seeming, for sure, right? This is a regime in which people, like the cave, they seem especially susceptible to seeming. And it's, I'm asking, I am not know if we've come to the end of it, but I'm asking this question seriously. They're all very credulous, they're all very gullible. They take what seems to be as truthful when it's not, and they're all hurt by it. And there's something about this regime that seems to make people particularly given into it. We we I'm sure you, we watch movies. We, we we watch these TV programs about scams. I can't remember the names of them on the television, but people who work these scams, you know, on, on every level of society, it goes on on the most basic level, it goes on on corporate level. The people are constantly working scams, using people, and it's a serious question. I, we've got to answer before we do this but What's your name? Mike. Mike. Do they have? Uh, communication, but not community? <laughs> it seems like they You want to go into that a little bit? Maybe there's not a relationship. There's not a real relationship. There's only business communication. Yeah. A lot of, let's hold on. Just hold on to that question as we go through the play. Because I want to come back to it when we get to the end. Because it's such, a, it's such an obvious thing going on. I mean, you can't read a page without watching something going on that's not right. And people going on in their lives like nothing's wrong and something is. Okay. Um, people in this regime seem particularly susceptible to appearances. Just hold on to that quality, okay? Um, now, I wanna, I wanna very quickly, I'm gonna read a couple of passages dealing with Chicago, and then we'll leave. and there's no hope to get testimony anymore. If thou dost, I shall never love thee after. Why thou silly gentleman? It is silly, it is silliness to live when the live is torment. He's going to kill himself out of love. Seems like the great romantic lover here. And then have a prescription to die when death is our physician. Oh villainous, I have looked upon the world for four times seven years. He's twenty years old. Since I could distinguish between a benefit and an injury, I never found man that knew how to love himself. What's the ideal for Iago? Self-love. And just think about this in relation to the commercial regime again. Because the whole commercial regime is set up for each one of us to benefit ourselves. I never found a man that knew how to love himself. Here I would say I would drown myself for the love of the guinea hen. I would change my humanity. Even if he ever found the option he would kill himself. The principle that rules him is serve himself. That's his guiding motive in everything he does. What should I do? I, con- I confess it is my shame to be so fond, but he's embarrassed that he loves. But it's not my virtue to amend it. Virtue? A fig. We've entered. You all know what nominalism means? It's, it's the great fight of the Middle Ages nominalism and um, essentialism. Remember. Nominalism is the belief that there are no universal truths, there's only particular That's the modern world. We do not believe in universals, which means we don't believe in God. We don't believe in the Trinity, because we can't see them with our senses. We're in a nominalistic world, so words are only names from which we get nominalism. They're just names. Tiago's response? Virtue, a fig. Who believes in virtue today? Why? We're in an economic world. Who who has its intent? It's getting ahead.
1: Virtue of it is in ourselves that we are thus or thus. Our bodies are our gardens,
0: to the which our wills are a gardeners. So that if we will plant nettles or sow lettuce, or hyssop or weed or thyme, supplied with our gender or herbs, distracting it many either to leave it sterile with idleness or manure with industry. while the power and cordial authority this lies in our wills. We're here, according to God, we're here to have our own will. That's all, to satisfy our individual will. He's, he's a principle of that belief, that idea. If the balance of our lives had not one scale of reason to another of sensuality, the blood and baseness of our natures would conduct us to our most preposterous conclusions. But we have reason to cool our raging emotions, our carnal stains, our unbidden lusts. Where if I take this that what you call love to be a seek and set sign, just this off branch, this cut or something, it cannot be. Going over, I could never better stand thee, um, thee than now. Put money in thy purse. Follow now the wars, defeat thy favor with an unjust excuse Feared, I say, put money in thy purse. It cannot be the testimony should long continue your love of the war. Put money in thy purse. Bet on it. How often do we hear that today? You believe in something? Bet on it. <laughs> That's the proof of it. Because it guarantees money. It was a violent commencement in her, and thou shalt see an answerable sequestration. Put money in thy purse. These moors are changeable in their wills. Fill thy purse with money. Bet The food that to him now is is luscious as locus, shall to him be shortly as bitter as She must change for you. That is, this was a passionate relationship. The more Othello's going to get over her, she's going to get over him. His, what he's saying to Rodrigo now is she's going to turn to uh, uh, what's the uh, casino. She must change for you. When she is saved with his body, she will find the error of her choice. She must have change, she must. Therefore, put plenty money in that purse. If thou was need, damn thyself, do it more delicate way than drown. Make all the money they can. If sanctimony in a frail vow between Canarian barbarian and super subtle Venetian be not too hard, for my wits of all the tribe of hell, thou shalt enjoy her. You will have her. Count on her. He's going to give her up, she will give you He's persuading him to keep on and to keep on giving him money to guarantee it, Because he's going to back it. It's like a, a financial scam watching him do what he's doing. So thou art sure of me, go make money. So he's going to continue to get money from him, go down a few lines. go to, farewell, put money in your purse, I'll send on my land. Now watch this, Iago says, thus do I ever make my fool my purse, for my own gain knowledge should I profane if I would time expend with such a snipe, but for my sport and profit I hate the more, and it is thought abroad that twixt my sheets he has done my office. I know not if it be true, but I, for mere suspicion in that kind, will do as if for surety. Come oh, on, everybody who follow this closely. We're about to an end, because this is crucial. He holds me well, the better shall my purpose work on him. From Rico, trust Trustman. Cassio is a proper man, let me see now, to get his place, to plumb up my will in double knavery. Now, let's see. After some time to abuse with devil's ears, he's going to plant the suspicion in and um, and you'll get back at um, Othello that way. But look at those words. If I would time expend with such a snipe, but for my sport and profit I hate the more, and it's thought abroad that twixt my sheets he's done my office. He he's assuming that Othello's mate loved his wife. That's why he's angry. Now hold on. Go on over Scene one, line two eighty. Um, this is just after all of the Venetians have landed at Cyprus, and we're going to watch the evil unfold. Everybody's left now. Caspariago open and by himself again, and he says this: that Cassio loves her, I do well believe it; that she loves him, tis apt and of great credit. The more albeit that I endure him not, is of a constant, loving, noble nature. That's a good man and I dare think you'll prove to Vesnaona, dear husband. And I do love her too, not out of an absolute lust, Though peradventure I stand accounted for his great sin, but partly led to die at my revenge, for that I do suspect the lusty war hath leaped into my seat. The thought whereof doth like a poison of mineral among my inwards, and nothing can or shall content my soul, till I am even with him wife for wife. Or failing so, yet that I put the more at least into a jealousy so strong. What's motivating Iago to do this evil? When he begins, remember in the opening, we read that last week in here, he says that he's angry at Othello out of envy because um, he. He made Cassio his second lieutenant instead of him. So his motives seems envy. Now it seems he's angry. If he would time expend in such a snipe but for my sport and profit, I hate the more. It's thought abroad that he twixt my seats has done my office, he slept and here, partly led to die my revenge for that. I do suspect the last has leaped into my seat that he's made love with his wife. How do we understand God right here? This is not small. This is not small. What's going on? What's Shakespeare showing us about evil? Sorry? It uses you. Sorry? It uses you. It uses you. It consumes you. Yeah, it's hard to see how you become a good comedian. His motives seem to be changing, right? What does that say? Sorry? I'll say it better, better. to itself, another reason. To resolve, to faster, to yeah, imagine this for a second. And we're going to stop on this because this is really dark. Shakers, if if we're going to live our faith, hopefully if this class means anything, it means taking a closer look at Christ and good and evil. Did Satan revolt from God because of man? Had man been created yet? Or because some angels had more money than others, or because one angel was prettier than another, or Pride. Hmm? Just pride. He, he 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 rebelled because he didn't want to acknowledge that he was created, that he was a creature contingent. He was made. He he wanted complete authority. It's it's further with the ring. That autonomy, you can do whatever you want. He wanted to be his God. If you're an angel um, and you don't like the motives that we have as humans, somebody's more, somebody's than I am, somebody's prettier than I am, somebody has more wealth than I am, somebody's got a car, somebody's smarter than I am, somebody more athletic than I am, you know, whatever it is, um, what does it say about evil in the way that it works? will will Iago ever lack a reason for what he does. No. He'll find a reason everywhere. And, and I mean, it looks like self-justification on one hand, and you know, he's not justifying; he's not talking to you. That to me is just one end of it. The other thing we're watching here is that um, he, will, he will adjust himself to any circumstance to, in his mind to justify what he's doing. He'll never lack for reasons. He's not justifying himself. He's giving a reason to do what he does because he's going to do it anyway. Because evil won't stop. It's not like it's bow- enemy's bound by it. She's got a dress, I don't have. Um, she just spilled something on, I'm glad. He had that job, he lost it, I'm glad because I didn't have it. You know what? Or she hurt me, I'm going to get back to her. Those are all the evils. They're all embodied in Satan. He doesn't have to have a reason, as we know it. Is that clear? This is, it's so eerie to watch, frightening. This is an angelic power. It's purely intellectual. He's not going to lie for a reason. He will give himself a reason, whatever the circumstances are. And it's so clear that it has no ground, no basis in reality. And he's his own sin at the beginning. Here it's just feeling like he's been betrayed as well. He will, he will keep going on this way. So we're watching, an evil, we're watching the nature of evil, and I'm going to say this. Uh, like I said it before, but I want to underline it now just as a, as a way of leaving. I said that to read, to read literature well, we have to learn to see ourselves in all the characters, not just the good characters. If we're doing that, there's a danger in our pride. If literature is teaching us anything, it's teaching us to see ourselves as we are. It seems to me one of the most frightening things about Othello is, if, if that's true, how easy is it to see Othello in Argonne and Iago against Andy and jealousy, or watching the mind find a reason for whatever it does, because it has only one aim to hurt another, to destroy another, because if he doesn't have it or he wants it, even if he had it, he wouldn't have it. He'd still come up with a reason. I am, I am not what I am. That's the opposite of God. So we're watching this evil set loose, and I'm gonna ask the same question I did last week. What is it about Venice that seems to make an open, even seems to encourage or make a space for this evil? We don't see it in the other regimes. It seems peculiar to this regime, to the nature. How do we deal with it? What happens? What happens to love because of it? You know? So those are some of the darker questions that we're gonna be looking at. Um, next week, we'll spend more time on the play, I promise, so we'll, we'll start working through the passages, but just keep those things in mind as you as you go forward. If Iago, particularly is a character, and what motivates him and what and, and he says, and most importantly, How does he work on, what does he, how does he work on Othello? What gives him that power over Othello to get him to, Othello loves Desdemona, he loves her. What makes Othello so vulnerable to this figure? What's going on in this regime that has that power over love? Okay? That's where we'll pick up next week. I hope you all have a happy week reading this dark story. (laughs) Sorry? Um. sorry. Oh if you didn't sign up tonight, would you be sure to sign up when you go out?